You've talked about the nine core qualities. We've talked about the strategies. And we have another Enneagram, meaning terms, concepts that we um, that we map to the Enneagram diagram. And the accelerators are practices that accelerate the growth or maturation of the core qualities. Now, there's nothing particularly esoteric about this, right? It's, um, you know, these are kind of simple practices. Some of them, again, might seem a little counterintuitive uh, from when we think about the stereotype of the Enneagram type. But there are things that we have found that in addition to working with the re-conceptualizing um, of the strategies and the awareness to action process allow us to really grow more quickly and really nurture the, the development of the core qualities. So we call these the nine accelerators. Yeah, and there are practices that we can all benefit from, but... Uh, just like with the core qualities, we all we can all feel those core qualities or experience them, but um, they are particularly useful in helping mature the uh, the core qualities at our point and the connecting points. Yeah, we've said before how when we're working with corporate clients, we often don't talk about the core qualities necessarily or uh, overtly, but we often do talk about the accelerators because, you know, as you'll see, they're just simple, good, pragmatic practices that have a big impact on us in lots of ways, right? I was just working with a, uh, having a, a meeting with a guy the other day who's a very senior executive, and we were talking about the accelerator at point three. He is a three. And, you know, he's not the kind of guy I would ever talk about the core qualities with, or at least not at this point in my coaching with him, but he really, really resonated with the value of the accelerator. Okay. So if we map all these, you know, our quote unquote three Enneagrams in one place, we see the strategy, which is kind of that orangish sort of color. And then we have the core quality in blue. And then we have the accelerators in the gray color. And, um, Again, nothing, you know, uh, hugely, um, 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 I don't know, mysterious about these or, or sophisticated, but it doesn't mean that they're easy. Exactly. Well, that's exactly <laughs> right. Uh, you know, take acceptance, for example, which, you yeah. know, is the, or the quality at, uh, I'm sorry, the accelerator point one. On the one hand, we can just blindly accept, okay, well, you know, it is what it is, Right. But we can say, well, it is what it is, but deep down inside, emotionally and viscerally, we're not really accepting things as they are, especially, especially mm -hmm. when it's a significant issue. Okay. Um, you know, same thing with purpose, right? I mean, again, everybody knows we should develop a purpose statement, but we often don't do it right. And we often don't do it thoroughly and we often don't do it clearly and then stick to it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where the magic is, is in doing these things the right way. Yeah. And it's like, we can do them at any given point, practice them, but they're also a life's journey. So we can spend our whole life trying to practice these things and still benefit from it. Mm -hmm. 
so, but they do have the, the value of um, being useful every time you practice them. Right, right, okay. All right, so um, again, the idea here is that on our path to growth, it starts with, you know, working with the strategies, right? That's kind of the most above the surface of the waterline, you know, issue that we deal with. And then we have to understand the core qualities, you know, what's happening in the depths of who we are. And then the accelerator sort of bridges the gap between those two things, right? If we didn't have these practices, then, you know, just trying to nurture the core qualities by just willing them to grow would not be enough. Working with the strategies helps, but the way I like to think of working with the strategies, it's like kind of when we're nurturing a plant or a tree, part of it is we have to clear the mess away, right? In order for the tree to get sunlight and to get to be able to grow without obstruction, we have to do our weeding, right? Pulling the weeds out from around it, making sure that there's not other trees, you know, overhanging to block the sunlight. Um, but we have to kind of cultivate the space or create the space. Whereas the, um, the accelerator is more along the lines of fertilizing the tree, right? Fertilizing the plant, giving it the nutrition it needs so that it can grow from the inside once those obstacles are removed. Yeah, and just as we call this, it gets us there faster. It's yes. a way to just yeah. accelerate the maturation of the core quality. Right. right. So we will um, share the um, the videos on the accelerators, not in the same order as the core qualities. So we will do points, I think, eight, two, and five. Or eight, two, and four. What was he? Don't remember. It's eight, I think it's eight, two, and five. Uh, but yes. I'll, we'll take a look. But the reason for that is yeah. because we want to highlight the interconnected nature of the the accelerators. We see a bit of this with the core qualities, right? We start to see that when we start to kind of tug on one of them, we feel something happening with the other two. With the accelerators, we find that the practices really reinforce each other, right? Yeah. So working on one accelerator and another and another at the same time really help. Yeah, so it will be eight, two, and four, and then uh, one, seven, and five, and then um, nine, six, and three. Okay. The accelerators are practices that accelerate the growth of, or the, the maturation of the core qualities. They're also just good life skills to develop. So uh, anybody of any Enneagram type can benefit from practicing these. We just find that they're things that are especially useful for people of that Enneagram type and um, that help to nurture the core quality found at that point. So as we talk about the accelerator at point eight, which is self-discipline, um, eights benefit from it, and um, but who can not benefit from a bit more self-discipline, right? I mean, I, I think we all can.
Okay. Uh, but it really is important for AIDS. Yeah, I, I every time we talk about self-discipline, I think of that of the reason why it's called self-discipline and not discipline. So uh, why didn't you share that story? Yeah, years ago when I first started teaching this, I was in Italy and um, I just called it discipline. I didn't call it self-discipline. And um, I was being translated into Italian, so I don't really know what the translator said, but I, I did notice that there was a woman in the audience who was getting increasingly angry as I was talking about this topic. And at one point she just raised her hand and said, you know, I'm an eight and no one will discipline me. And, you know, and I realized, okay, that my point was not getting across, right? It's not about having someone else discipline us. It is about learning ways to develop self-discipline. Now this often involves sort of giving over a little bit of our autonomy to something else, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that we have to do it completely, but it means, okay, I'm going to hold myself accountable to other people or to myself or to some cause, okay? There does need to be some sort of sort of letting go. Now, again, as with any behavior change that we're trying to make, we have to kind of you know, frame this, or it helps to frame this in the terms of the strategy, right? And what the eight needs to remember is, you know what, I'll actually be better off. I'll be more powerful if I learn to practice self-discipline. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's when we think about uh, the example you gave about the um, immature, mature versions of vitality being like a fire hose that you can let loose, the um, accelerator just provide some structures so that it's not loose, but you're holding on to it and right. uh, it's pointing to a particular place and not just everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the vitality is still flowing. It's just flowing in a directed way rather than a, you know, sometimes destructive way. Okay. So, um, so the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the core quality is vitality. The strategy is power and the practice is self-discipline. And again, that takes us from the immature version, which is this impulsive self-expression to the managed life force, meaning I am directing my energy in a particular place. Now this can be all sorts of, you know, there's all sorts of paths to this self-discipline that we're talking about. Some people find it in a spiritual practice, right? I'm going to join a meditation group. Some people find it in attending a fitness class. Okay, all right, I'm going to go, you know, to, to a fitness class for a while. Some people, you know, decide they're going to take a martial arts class or something, or they're going to go back to school or whatever it is. They're going to say, you know what? I am going to take, you know, I'm going to hold myself to something other than just my whim of what I feel like feel like doing at any given moment. Yeah, it could be like forcing yourself to write every morning at a particular mm -hmm. time, uh, and not just whenever I feel the inspiration to write. And that right. could be uh, beneficial for everyone, but um, with AIDS, it's particularly uh, useful. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example, right? I mean, Hemingway was famous for, you know, he just, got up in the morning and the first thing he did was walk to his office and he would write for three or four hours, 
right? And you just say, you know, this is what I do. This is what a writer does. I go and I write, whether I feel like it or not, whether I have anything to say or not, whether what I'm writing is good or not, I'm just going to type for, you know, three hours, four hours, and then I'm going to go drink the rest of the day. Yeah, I was going to say that. Morning, you know? <laughs> you to have self-discipline the rest of the day, just yeah. in the mornings. Yes, I'm not suggesting him as a role model for, you know, uh, for life skills, but at least in that area, he understood the importance of this. And look what it got him, you know, one of the greatest writers ever. Yeah. We move on to Enneagram point two and um, the accelerator at point two that helps us to nurture compassion is cognitive empathy. Now, usually empathy is put into two different categories, right? There's kind of spontaneous or emotional empathy, and then there's cognitive empathy. Now, just because we call it cognitive empathy doesn't mean that it's not based, rooted in emotion, right? Mm -hmm. Rooted in an intuitive response or an emotional response to people, but it brings in an element of intentionality and thoughtfulness, right? So instead of just feeling and acting on those feelings, we recognize our feelings and then we manage our response, okay? So the difference between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy is that cognitive empathy just, you know, kind of takes a pause and checks, all right, is my emotional reaction correct? Now, People think, oh, who's more empathic than a two, right? I mean, twos are all about empathy. They're all about understanding other people. But what we find really is that very often twos are not reacting to what the other person is actually experiencing, but they are reacting to what they are assuming the other person is experiencing or what they secretly want the other person to be experiencing, or they're projecting their own needs onto another person okay and and of course they don't do that intentionally right and that's what happens uh but that's what happens anyway right. and the cognitive aspect of it is like seeing more clearly it's it's using uh what we have discussed earlier about kind of clear thinking and seeing that we are biased, that we might not be seeing exactly what the other person is experiencing. So um, try to see through our own projections or um, interpretations and um, have a clearer view of what the other person needs. Yeah. So this strategy is striving to feel connected, right? And usually, you know, often the two will try to connect to people by finding some need to fill for them, okay? Um, the, you know, the two is often called the helper and, you know, everybody talks about how they, you know, they give to get and, you know, we, we've addressed this before, but we don't think that's really, you know, a fair assessment of what's happening with the two. There is this desire to connect and helping people is a way to do that, okay? Um, and by, uh, you know, by connecting, we do often get uh, an empathic sense of what other people are experiencing, right? Because we're paying more attention to them. So twos, you know, very often are more empathic than, say, an eight or a one or, you know, some of the other types. But 
they're not as empathic as they think they are all the time. Okay. And so by, you know, the immature version of compassion is, you know, again, what we call reflexive union, meaning I'm just reacting to somebody else's emotional state. Whereas the mature version is managed and intentional union. And this is what we get through cognitive empathy of sitting back and saying, okay, what's happening here? Let me confirm my intuitions. So if I'm looking at Maria Jose and I say, oh, Maria Jose, you know, you, you look cold right here. Take this blanket. Okay. Well, Maria Jose might say, okay, well, I'm not cold, so leave me alone. And I say, no, 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 I can tell you're cold. You, you know, look at you. And I push the blanket onto her. That's what the two or the two and all of us is doing when we're acting from this place of emotional empathy. We're just assuming that my intuitions about somebody else's condition are the correct ones and we're acting upon them without thinking. But cognitive empathy allows me to say, Maria Jose, are you, are you cold? You, you look cold to me. Are you cold? And she can say, you know, she can say, no, I'm fine. No, I may not believe her. And I might check and I say, are you sure? You, you know, you're shivering and your lips are blue. Are you sure you're not cold? You know, but if she then says to me, no, I'm fine. I just have this weird medical condition. Uh, then, you know, I have to acknowledge that and, you know, not force a blanket onto her. Okay. And, and yeah, I'm getting worried now. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, so it doesn't mean that we need to disregard our first kind of intuition about what the other person right. is experiencing, but use that as one possibility that we need yes. to test. We need to make sure yes. that that's exactly what they're experiencing and also what they need because they might need um, some help, but they might not want it wanted from us they might right. it might be uh, better for themselves to just uh, get that on their own or do something else about it yeah. so um we need yeah, to not, check. yeah that's an excellent point right and so but and and what the cognitive aspect of this empathy does is it allows us to say well you know i still trust myself that she's cold because I mean, look at her, but, um, but I also step back and say, but a more empathic thing right now is to give her her space and her, you know, freedom and her autonomy over, you know, whether she wears a blanket or not. Right. So, um, you know, this is a higher level of empathy than just reacting to our feelings. And it's what leads us to true compassion. At point four, the accelerator is disidentification. It's letting go of ideas. It's letting go of associations. It's um, learning to separate from our attachments. Okay? The core quality is um, individuality. And individuality in its core form is just something that, you know, so it's, it's just being unique. Right. I mean, it's truly being an individual, meaning that we don't have to try just by nature of being born with a distinct DNA and a distinct uh, fingerprint and a, a distinct you know, footprint makes us different from everybody else. Okay? So, again, we lose that. And the, at point four, the dilemma is that we start to forget that we are distinct we start to recognize or notice the ways in which we are just like other people. We start to see how influenced we are 
by our environment. And we start to lose the sense of, well, wait a minute, what's truly me? And what is some artifact from my relationship with the rest of the world? Okay. So what does the four do? They say, well, I'm going to demonstrate that I'm unique. I am going to manufacture some kind of uniqueness that says, no, I am not that. Okay. I am this. Now, we don't always think of it this way. The four often you know, truly believes and, you know, to an extent are trying to express their own unique nature. But what they don't realize is how much of that is driven by some identification with something else that they don't want to be. Okay. Yeah, and it's just they try too hard. They don't need, there's no need to try that hard. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, as it says here, like, um, these attachments to certain um, something related to my identity, that something that I want to be or how I want to be seen or don't want to be seen. I'm not that, I'm this. And it's all in uh, relationship to something. So it's not uh, enough to just feel um, as an individual for myself. Uh, it has to, it's in comparison in relation to something else. And that's the, um, this identification. Now we used to uh, call it individuation, uh, but it was, it was kind of the same, but it has been, the concept has evolved, but it's not comparing ourselves to anything. Just see uh, what we are, or how we are. Yeah. Yeah, one of the reasons we switched it from individuation is because, um, you know, Jung uses that term of um, individuation. And in Jung's ideas, there is this element of, you know, kind of creation of the self, right, as, as a way of separating. Um, but, you know, for us, disidentification is really just shedding of things, right? It's like shedding our old skin. It's not trying on a new coat. Okay, and saying, oh, I'm going to be this now. And um, so disidentification takes us from the immature version of uh, of individuality that we call de facto distinction. Right. Meaning that just you just are distinct. Right. You have your own footprint, your own fingerprint, your own DNA. There's nothing you can do about that. Okay, so, you know, by definition, you are different from everybody else. But. When we start to practice disidentification of letting go of our sense of attachment to identity, then we get this mature version of individuality, which we call spontaneous unfolding, meaning that the who you are will continue to grow and evolve. And because you are distinct by nature, by definition, that way that you unfold will be an expression of fundamentally who you are, right? Naturally, it'll be, it'll be this sort of uh, becoming sort of state rather than a rejection, an act of rejection. It'll just be, yes, I'm, I'm evolving into this thing. I'm growing into this thing, not because I have some need to do that, but because that's what happens when I am living in contact with the mature core qualities. 
Mm. Okay. So, it's interesting. so just, if I could just say one more point, Maria, before I forget this, this is what true authenticity is, right? True authenticity is this spontaneous unfolding of who we are rather than this trying to cloak myself in identity in some way. So go ahead. Now, I was going to go back to the um, dynamic of type four and how many times what they do is uh, compare themselves to other people and what other people are going through and the qualities they have. And it's a permanent kind of, no, I'm not like that. This person, this person, I don't know, succeeded at that. So would I succeed at that? Or they're bad at that. So am I bad at that? Or uh, it's like, it's a, a permanent um, defining of who I am, depending on what I have in front of me and, or a concept that I have. And, but it's always external. So what you're saying here, it's, it's internal. It's this unfolding yes. uh, doesn't need something outside of myself. Yes. It's just enough uh, with what I kind of how I unfold independent of others. Yeah. Yeah. In, in theology, there are basically two approaches to um, defining what God is, right? So there's the, the via positiva approach, which is associating qualities with God. You know, God is love, God is goodness, God is peace, etc. But then there's the, um, the via negativa approach, which is God is not this, he's not that, he is not hateful, he is not, you know, prideful, he is not this, he's not that. And then what you are left with is what God is, right? And this is the same sort of approach to understanding ourselves is, okay, I'm not this, I'm not that. I'm not this, I'm not that. I'm not attached to it. I just am. And in a lot of uh, the, the, the Hindu um, philosophical traditions, there's, the, there's this phrase called neti neti. You know, I'm not this, I'm not that. It's not this, it's not that. And that thing that we're left with is the self. Okay. So in practical terms, how would you practice this identification? Yeah, so to practice, that's a great question. So to practice this identification is to look at ways in which we assign labels and roles to ourselves, right? Ways in which we attach to some kind of an identity and then let go of it, right? So, um, you know, learn to say, oh, here, now it can be either an identification with something or an identification based on the rejection of something. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm not my father. I'm not my mother. I'm not like them. I'm not like them. Well, this goes through our head all the time. And if we're practicing disidentification, we say, well, yeah, I have similarities to them and I have ways in which I'm not like them. Right. And so let me just relax into being who I am and work on my own growth and development and get over my mommy and daddy issues. <laughs> right. And, you know, or, culturally, you know, well, I'm, you know, I'm from the United States, but I'm not like the typical, you know, gringo or something, or at least, you know, I think that, but in some <laughs> ways I am, right? I mean, you know, and in other ways I'm not. Several. You know, so, so, yeah, several ways, right? So, I, I, you know, so we just, you know, the more we recognize these 
ways of identifying ourselves with a certain group. It could be a religious label. It could be a, um, you know, a, a political label. It could be the, a role in the family that we have. There are so many identifications that we carry around. We just want to pay attention to where we tend to get stuck in these things and then just learn to let go of them. Right. Um, there's the, you know, some of the, the Shaivite monks in India who will go and live in the, in the crematory grounds, right, where they, you know, cremate uh, dead bodies. And, you know, they strip off all of their clothes and, you know, they live on handouts from other people. You know, they're covered in ashes and they use, you know, skull caps from the ground as begging bowls and to eat out of and all this stuff. And it sounds insane. Um, and it could be, but you know, the idea behind it is to just get rid of any attachment to anything, right? Because it's once we get rid of the attachment that we start to find out, all right, what is the authentic me? What is the real expression of me? Now, I don't recommend this as, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't know that it'd make a great weekend retreat or anything like that, right? Um, but, uh, you know, it, it illustrates the point that we're trying to make here. The accelerator of point one is acceptance. Um, this is one of the accelerators that's often misunderstood, this idea of acceptance. Um, and we always try to draw the distinction between acceptance and resignation. Um, there's a tendency among people to say, you know, that, uh, oh, well, you know, the universe is unfolding as it is and, you know, what will be, you know, will be and, you know, all, all these sort of things. Um, but that's not what we're talking about with acceptance. What we're talking about here is embracing the world as it is, as your starting point, without disappointment or anger. Now, when we say embracing the world, we're not saying, you know, love it, you know, uh, with whatever bad situation you're dealing with. We're just saying, accept it, you know, bring it in, uh, just acknowledge that it is what it is. This doesn't mean that we can't change our situation or work to improve our situation or make things better. It just means that if we get angry about the world being the way it is, or if we fall into our disappointment with the world being as it is, we're not going to be effective in working to improve it. Okay, So it's letting go of emotion is what we're talking about. Yeah. And... As with all the accelerators, this applies to everyone. So we would all benefit from working on acceptance. But for type one, uh, there's this belief that they know how things should be, how the world should be. So seeing how it really is brings them um, a lot of frustration because it's not as it should be. So it's even harder for them to accept things as they are. And the, they distort, as you were saying, uh, the concept of acceptance to being okay, to um, approving how the world is. Uh, and that's not what we're talking about. It's just the understanding, the acknowledgement of how things are and then what we can do about it, we can try to change it, but we don't, 
we don't fight back what is. We just try to change the future, not try to change the past. Yeah. And although it might seem evident, once somewhere try to change the past or the things that already are, um, fighting it back, resisting it, being frustrated, angry, disappointed. And they spend a lot of energy doing that. There's the saying that we shouldn't cry over spilled milk, right? So, you know, you spill the milk and yeah, you might be irritated that you spilled the milk, but being angry about it, crying about it doesn't do any good. Okay. So what you need to do is clean up the milk and, um, you know, and get more milk or, or whatever it is. So, uh, and then ask yourself, how can I not spill the milk next time? So, um, you know, we want to remember that the core quality here is objectivity. Okay, and objectivity is seeing the world as it is without preconception and prejudice and so forth. For the, the, the one and the one in all of us, we struggle with that. It becomes stunted in us. We start to develop prejudices and preconceptions and biases and, you know, and assumptions. The one in the place of objectivity inserts striving to feel perfect. They insert rules, they insert uh, processes and structures that need to be followed. And then when they are not followed, the rules are not obeyed, they get angry. Okay? So again, acceptance is about letting go of that anger. So the immature version of objectivity is simply not having prejudices and preconceptions. It's not saying that we're truly objective, right? An infant does not have objective experience as we described. Their world is very subjective, but they are not yet loaded with prejudices and preconceptions and assumptions. Okay? By practicing acceptance, we learn to let go of those rules and expectations. We learn to let go of the anger that makes us hold on to those rules and expectations. And we start to learn to recognize and manage our subjectivity, right? We start to recognize, oh yes, I'm falling into this bias again. I'm falling into this assumption. I'm falling into this limited narrative. Let me step away from it. Let me step away from that subjectivity and interact with the world in a more objective way. Yeah, and as you said before, this is not everything is perfect as it should be. This is seeing clearly what's going on without resisting um, anything, if possible, but without <laughs> resisting what is or fighting it back. Yeah. But just understanding what is that we're dealing with in ourselves and outside of ourselves. Yes. And that is the acceptance. Um, the practice of acceptance. Now that only that practice allows us to see clearly. Right. Because otherwise we're just stuck in resisting it. Uh, when we accept it, it's we're able to see our subjectivity, as you said, and just see what's beyond that. Yeah. And the reason this is of value because it helps us better understand what we need to do next, 
Okay. This is not just some kind of, oh, okay, I'm enlightened now. I can just sit here and, you know, accept things as they are. No, all of these things are so that we can then take more effective action about what's happening. So, you know, in order to act effectively, we have to see clearly or else we're, you know, faced with going in the wrong direction or addressing something that doesn't need to be addressed and ignoring something that does need to be addressed. It's, uh, I, I'll never forget one time that we were talking about somebody, um, a mutual friend who used to frustrate me a lot. And um, I was talking about a situation that frustrated me again. And I talked, I don't know for how long, uh, I just don't remember, but it seemed like a long time about how frustrated about I was about what happened. And you listened to me patiently. And when I stopped, you said, are you done now? And I said, I think so. So what do we do now? And to me, that was a really vivid example of how much time and energy I waste as a type one, um, just resisting things or trying to find the reason or who is to blame and why it's wrong. And so, so we all know that uh, kind of resisting what we can't change is just um, useless, but we keep doing it in different ways, trying to find the reasons, the guilty parts, and it's just not effective um it's useless yeah and look in the situation that you're describing the reason i was able to say you know okay are you done now and then okay what are we going to do about it is mainly because i did not have the emotional subjectivity around the issue that you did right so it was easier for me to be objective in that situation where if it was somebody i was irritated about you could have easily said the same thing to me right uh, <laughs> I, you know I, uh, there's times when i get all wrapped up in my emotional responses to things we all do it uh, the key is learning to remember that we're mm -hmm. doing it to realize that we're doing it and then say ah i'm doing it again let me practice acceptance here Moving on to point seven, the accelerator is savoring. Um, with the seven, now, again, this shows where some of these things can be somewhat counterintuitive, right? So it's pretty clear when we say that the one needs to practice acceptance, right? We can say, oh, yeah, ones, you know, get kind of caught up in things and that eights need to practice self-discipline. And we would think that sevens, you know, who experiences more pleasure than sevens? Who takes more joy in life than sevens? But the reality is that they're not, much of the time, they're not savoring their experience. They are not present to what's currently happening, but they're doing something but thinking about the next thing, right? So they're eating a meal, but they're thinking about what they could have had. Okay. They're taking a sip of coffee and then they're thinking, oh, I could have had tea. And so there's this um, frustration that sevens experience in their attempt to capture excitement that pulls them out of the moment. 
And savoring is all about being in the moment. It's about being with one's current experience. So we say it's being present with one's current experience rather than anticipating the next one. The um, accelerator, I'm sorry, the uh, core quality is joy, as we've talked about. And uh, joy is the um, contentment independent of external pleasure, right? Meaning that it's something that comes from the inside rather than from the outside. And when that is stunted in the seven, they often reach over and grab this strategy of striving to feel excited as an attempt to satisfy that need. Okay, now, again, it doesn't mean that the lack of joy causes excitement. It just means that they're you know, kind of correlated in this way. Now, the immature version of this is what we call whimsical pleasure. Now, I want to be careful about that because, you know, some people can say, well, you know, whimsical is not a bad thing. And there are moments of whimsy that are kind of uh, very fulfilling and satisfying for people. And so, you know, we, we understand that. And deliberate. And deliberate. And yeah. Absolutely right. You know, not everything has to be Shakespeare, right? Uh, you know, it's 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 okay to you know watch Hallmark or something sometimes, right? So, uh, I, you know, I, I don't, but you know, some people take pleasure in that. It's not always a bad thing. So, what we're talking about here is fleeting pleasure, attempts often dependent upon some sort of external stimulation that amuse me but are ultimately unsatisfying, okay? It's like eating empty calories, okay? It, I, I, you know, I feel like I should feel something, but I don't. My, my son one time, um, uh, he tasted Pellegrino water for the first time because <laughs> he had seen me drinking it, and he tastes it, and he says, ooh, that's disgusting, disgusting. He said, it tastes like it should taste like something, but it doesn't, right? <laughs> And, you know, and that just struck me as, an, as such an amazing way to put this. And it made me think of this quality that we're talking about in its immature form. It feels like it should be satisfying, but it's not. Okay. Um, now, it's by savoring. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was thinking about kind of the baby. And we've been discussing this whimsical concept, but with most of the other immature versions of the core qualities, there's something we talk about what it isn't, you know? So it's the lack of preconceptions, the lack of ill will, the lack of... Um, is there a way to see the core quality at point seven um, in that, through that lens? Yeah, I, I don't know that it's so much a lack of something, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, maybe it is, right? It's, it's the lack of substantive engagement with something, okay? Um, a, a baby can sit and play with their toes for a while and be very engaged with that. And we can find ways to amuse ourselves and this will generate this feeling of well-being, but it's always fleeting, right? And it's dependent upon something else. It's not just a state that arises from the sheer joy 
of being alive or just the, the, the fact of being alive. Okay. We always talk about how, um, we talk about the flowing nature of a lot of these things, right? So, you know, when we coach clients, we tell them to look for friction in the system, right? When something's not working. And this really applies to joy, right? It's something that is part of who we are and can flow out, but it gets impeded in some way, okay? And we try to recapture it through this external stimulation, but again, because it's not the real thing, it's unsatisfying. We, you know, we, we, we look for, um, <coughs> uh, you know, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for something profound, but instead we go to Las Vegas, right? And we're wondering why am I not satisfied? Why is all this glitz, all these flashing lights? Why do they feel like an empty meal to me? And you know, some people love did I say Los Angeles or Las Vegas? I meant Las, Las Vegas. Vegas. Yeah, Las Vegas, right? So, uh, so we—that's what I meant. So, I go to Las Vegas, and you know, and it's great for an hour, okay. And then I'm kind of like, all right, I'm bored with this. All this flash, all this stimulation. There's nothing to this. It's all just kind of false uh, stimulation. There's nothing to savor, in a way, okay. It's like cotton candy, right? Uh, cotton candy there. You put it in your mouth. It's this, you know, big kind of puffy cloud of sugar. Mario, can you stop? Um, we'll cut this, but it's uh, your connection. It says here that it's really bad. Really? Yeah. It says, yeah, like zero from 10. Zero out of 10 according to this network connection. Let me see something. You know, oh, this drives me in. Somehow, um, Google, I mean, Yahoo, Now it's five out of ten. Six. What happened with Yahoo? Somehow it became the default. But search. you can change that. I, I I've tried to and it keeps changing back for some reason. Oh. I, yeah. So let, let me just see what's happening here. So how about fleeting pleasure? I think it's... Yeah. Um, yeah, same more. This is still doing the speed test. So my download is 935 megabytes. Now it's all green. I mean... Okay. So right. there are four bars here, and they're all green now. Yeah. Before, it was one and red. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, say more about the pleasure, feeling pleasure. Fleeting. 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 Fleeting pleasure. Fleeting yeah. pleasure. 
yeah. think that that's a better way to capture it. I'm not saying that we change it now, yeah. but um, okay, but so I we think, get... yeah. So, um, so I'm not sure where we're gonna cut this. Um, Me neither. Okay, but, so you can you can figure it out. So let me know yeah. when you're ready to go again. Go again. We're not going to start over, right? We're just going to continue with where we were. Okay. So the idea here for the the seven or the challenge that the seven faces is that they substitute excitement, stimulation for true joy, true pleasure, and it feels fleeting. Right. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm never quite there. It's always getting away from me. I feel it and then it's gone. I feel it and then it's gone. And I'm always frustrated and I'm always irritated and I'm always jumping from one thing to the next in an effort to maintain this, you know, outward excitement that I'm trying to express. Savoring allows us to be in the moment. So when we work with sevens, we tell them, okay, you know that first sip of coffee and how great it tastes? And then the second sip tends to be a disappointment. Well, one of the reasons it's a disappointment is because we're not paying attention to the yes. second sip. So I want you to focus on the second sip just as much as you did on the first sip. And if you're stopping to smell the flowers, instead of doing it for five seconds and then moving on, do it for 10 seconds. And if you're practicing mindfulness, do it for one minute and then, you know, if that's your capacity, do it for a minute and 10 seconds, right? So it's always a little effort of being present and engaged and savoring a little bit more, a little bit longer. And this leads to attentive fulfillment, right? So we go from some fleeting, whimsical pleasure to something that I'm experiencing and I'm aware that I'm experiencing. And that's the key. Right. Mm -hmm. I am experiencing this. I am feeling joy in this. And I'm aware that I'm feeling joy. I was thinking how simple these accelerators are. <laughs> and um, for some people, these might seem like obvious or not um, relevant. But we've seen how for a seven, this might, this could be, and for all of us, but yeah. for sevens in particular, this can be um, something that they need to work on for the rest of their lives. You know, yes. it's the ability, the capacity to savor more moments, not every moment, but more, right. more moments that, and that how can that really bring them joy? Because yes. it's, more the attentive fulfillment. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and the more we practice it, the more we experience it, right? And and this is the, the key thing here. And again, we all experience this. I mean, we live in an environment, um, you know, culturally that's kind of turning us all into sevens, right? I mean, even as, you know, we're sitting here doing this recording, there's a part of my mind that's wanting to check my email, right? That wanting to go here, do there, do this, do that. We're all doing this all day long. So um, the, the accelerator here is learning to sit with something and be a conscious present. The core quality of point five is intentional practice. This means practicing something 
in a conscious, deliberate way, that we are aware of what we're doing it, and we're doing it for a reason, um, instead of just practicing something. So for example, um, say you were practicing the piano, if you played piano, we could sit and practice our scales or practice a particular song, but our mind would be somewhere else. Okay? So our body is going through the motions, okay? Um, or, you know, we're half paying attention. And so we're not doing it in an effective way. We're not paying attention, for example, to the tempo. We're just kind of doing it. Uh, intentional practice means, okay, I'm going to bring my awareness to my engagement in the world, my doing of something, and I'm going to do it intentionally. So when I am practicing my piano, I am conscious of where my fingers are going, and I am conscious of the tempo, and I am conscious of the of the uh, the you know the the, the loudness of the sound. So you can tell I'm not a musician. Um, so um, and this applies to anything that we do. Okay, it's doing practicing something in an intentional way. Now, why does this matter? Because the core quality here is intuition, right? Um, intuition is kind of an inner knowing, right? It's, it's a knowing, it's a responsiveness that's not rooted on my conscious present mind. Uh, somebody throws a ball to me and I catch it, right? Um, I'm doing that not just reflexively, but intuitively, because I have practiced catching a ball, right? You throw a ball to a baby, and they don't do so good at catching it. Okay? Um, but through learning to practice catching a ball, we don't have to think about it anymore, because we have ingrained that into our brain, and our brain takes over at a level that we are not aware of, okay? So um, intuition is this sort of inner knowing. But again, in the child, that becomes stunted okay? because they want to trust their intuitions. They want to trust their impulses, but they quickly learn that doing so is not always a good idea. Okay, Oh, I want to eat that. It looks good. Okay, and somebody yanks it out of our hand and says, no, you shouldn't eat spiders, right? Or, you know, whatever it is, okay? Yeah, or maybe it's not enough. So it's not enough for what they need. It doesn't satisfy the needs of the moment yeah explain that more maria yeah because we talk about how things that uh intuitively we might think that are good for us might be bad for us so so yes. we run risks but also um we think that what um we intuitively think can work might not work not even be a risk but it's might not be dangerous for us, but it could be not enough uh, to succeed at what we're trying to do. Yeah. The important point here is that it's not just thinking about something, but it's actually doing something, okay? Uh, and so the practice needs to be here, the application of our knowledge okay, into some sort of skillfulness and it's through practicing intentionally some sort of skill that we ingrain it. The best performer in almost every area is an intuitive performer, uh, an athlete, 
functions intuitively. A musician functions intuitively. A martial artist who's sparring functions intuitively. But they only develop the ability to do that through lots and lots and lots of practice. Okay. Like I said, first time you throw a ball to somebody, they're not just going to, you know, catch it. Um, the first time somebody practices piano and decides they're going to improvise, it does not sound very good, right? Because it's probably just banging on the, on the keyboard. Okay. When you're practicing hitting a tennis ball, okay, it's, it's not going to be a very pretty sight the first few times we do it, but you have to practice it and practice it and practice it, paying attention, thinking about it, analyzing it, and then you learn to do it without thinking. Okay. Yeah, it, it is not enough to read a book or to watch people playing tennis. Um, yes. Understand all the moves and all the things that you should be doing. You need to practice it so that you can respond intuitively, but um, in a skillful way. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've read... Um, you know, books by people who didn't have, who clearly didn't have expertise in their experience in the area that they were writing about, right? And you you can tell, right? You can just see. And it's like the, the analogy I always used, it's like reading a book about swimming by someone who's never had their hair wet, right? Uh, you just, you know, there's knowledge, real deep knowledge comes from doing a thing. Okay. And then we learn to integrate it. So whenever we hear people say, oh, I'm, ver I'm a very intuitive person and I trust my intuitions, they're talking about naive assumption here. I, 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 I know people. I, I, I know people, how people are. So I can just you know re rely on my gut about things. Well, there's very few things where that might work, but most of the time it's going to be a mess. Okay? But it's through intentional practice that we develop mature intuition, which we call a skilled responsiveness. In certain areas. Yes. It, it is domain specific. Yes. It is not uh, in any uh, <laughs> in any domain. Yes. Yeah, absolutely right. Just because I develop uh, intuition around hitting a tennis ball and you know being able to read a tennis opponent right, without realizing that I'm reading them, right, just kind of getting a sense of where they're going to hit the ball next, because I've played, you know, millions and millions of hours or hundreds and thousands of hours of tennis, doesn't mean I can take that same intuition apply and apply it to flying airplanes or jazz improvisation or something like that. You're absolutely right. Uh, intuition is rarely, well, in fact, probably never universal and transferable. The accelerator point three is purpose. Um, when we work with clients, threes for sure, but other clients as well, we have them create a purpose statement. And um, now this is not an uncommon activity. In fact, lots of coaches do this and uh, lots of people say, oh, you know, I really should have some sort of purpose statement. But it's actually surprisingly difficult for people. Uh, very often, th they'll do, instead of what we're talking about, they'll do kind of the graveyard test, right? What do you want written on your tombstone? Okay. And 
you know, that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is what is the theme that holds everything together for you? Okay. Um, so the core quality at point three is, um, is value. The three and the three in us loses this sense of being inherently valuable they start to think that their value is rooted in their accomplishments instead of just the simple fact of being a human being. Because we tend to not see the value, inherent value in ourselves, we struggle to see it in other people, which is why we don't treat other people as the treasures they are all the time. Um, and so what happens for the three is they start to say, well, I, I don't feel valuable, so I have to be outstanding. I have to accomplish. The problem is, is that they end up seeking to be outstanding, striving to be outstanding, seeking to accomplish in a way that doesn't have a consistency to it. It doesn't have an end purpose. And so they start to feel like a hamster in the wheel. I work so hard. I do so much. I run and I run and I run and I run. And I never feel like I'm getting anywhere because they don't really know what the destination is. Now, I'm not talking, I'm not saying they don't have goals. Very often they do. The problem is that very often those goals are unsatisfying. Okay. I became vice president. Now what? Right. It, it becomes more a kind of like an external way of setting goals and yeah. kind of based on external input or when, what it's valued. Uh, on the outside by other people, not what I value. Yes, yes. So the three, by creating a uh, sense of purpose, uh, I'm sorry, can you go back just one second? Sure. Mario, Jose? Um, the, the three, the, the idea of purpose here is it's an explicit existential reason that ties together your actions and accomplishments. Now, that sounds like a big, <laughs> heavy philosophical thing. And people often get really overwhelmed by the idea of, you know, when they say to them, I want you to write a purpose statement because they feel like, oh my goodness, you know, my, my you're, you're asking me to identify what my purpose in life is and philosophers have been trying to figure out the meaning of life forever. And it's, it's like different. discovering it. <laughs> yes. And I just, I haven't found it yet. Right is, is what they say. And this is the mistake. First of all, we're talking about purpose rather than meaning. Okay. Meaning's much different. Okay. And that's a bigger philosophical question that we'll kind of leave aside for now. Um, purpose is what am I here to be used for? Okay. What can I be used for? And it's not something we find. It's something we create. And this is the most important thing to understand, right? We can't find it out there. We can't go on a search to find our purpose. We can't lift up a rock and it'll kind of crawl out like a bug. Uh, it's not going to, you know, be revealed behind some clouds or at the top of a mountaintop. It's something we have to sit down and say, you know, given all of my interest, given all of my capabilities, given all of what I value in life, here's what my purpose is. Yes. And we always tell our clients, write it in pencil. Why? Because pencils have erasers. Okay. Or write it in a Word document or a Google document that you can edit because it's not a lifetime commitment. 
you're not getting a tattoo. You're writing something to give you a sense of direction. Okay. Yes. So it's like, where do I want to get and how do I want to get there? And that can change. And it will should include, as you said, my values, what I'm good at, what I like. And it will allow me to leave aside things that do not uh, contribute towards that purpose. Yeah. And, and that's why it allows me to uh, have or to nurture the self-possessed um, achievement that it's the kind of mature version of value. It's something that it is important to me that I decide, and it's not based on what people value externally, but on what I think it's important. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's contrasted, you know, the self-possessed achievement you talk about. Um, it's it's contrasted with the immature version, which is we talk about as self-centered importance, right? Is that, hey, wait, I, I, I should be acknowledged. I should be praised. OK, that's not what value is. Right. Just because we value somebody doesn't mean that we have to tell them they're awesome all the time and they're the prettiest and the best and all these sort of things. Right. Uh, you know, we've had this problem in the United States, uh, you know, in recent years where on some of the sports teams, every kid gets a trophy. Right. Uh, there's no winners and losers. You know, everybody's a winner just for playing. And that really backfired you know that started in the 1980s and it really backfired because then you had a lot of entitled young adults who were saying oh wait a minute i showed up for work i should get a trophy right just for showing up uh, that's not what we're talking about here okay you don't deserve a trophy just for being who you are you have value we will you know you deserve to be respected you deserve to be loved you deserve to be treated with dignity okay um but that is different from this self-possessed achievement. I know what I'm trying to achieve. I know where I'm going. And I know what I'm not trying to achieve and where I'm not going. So I know that I'm not going to, like the hamster on the wheel, spend my time doing things that have no significance. I do the important things and I let the rest off to the side. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but... Um... Well, you said it, how the our clients uh, get really anxious about it. And many times I see them again and they just didn't work on their purpose because it's intimidating. It feels like a big thing, especially threes. Yes. Um, or it's just a list of goals. Yes. Uh, it's, it feels like it's like the seven, like not wanting to maybe commit to things and being uh, afraid they will lose options. Here it's kind of how will I narrow down my goals? You know, it, it feels like a bit restrictive, um, but just too big of a task. But um, once they do it, um, it feels very good. Yes. The accelerator at point six is evidence. And what we mean by this, it's the act of um, deliberately and objectively gathering evidence about our capabilities in a particular area. 
what happens with the six is that they lose connection uh, or the quality of confidence becomes stunted. Okay? So uh, in the child, uh, the child does not um, yet know how threatening the world is. Okay, so uh, confidence that the child has, they don't have particular fear of specific threats in the environment. They're just ignorant of it. You know, they're kind of laying there and life has been pretty good so far. They haven't heard about werewolves and vampires and zombies yet, right? So they don't know to be afraid of those things uh, or even some of the more real threats in life. Um, and when the six starts to lose their feeling of confidence, their um, this quality in themselves, they strive to feel secure. Okay, well, there's a lot of threats out there. I better find them all. Right? I better identify them. I better get ready for them. I better prepare. And when I've prepared, I better double check and triple check and quadruple check to make sure that I did. Okay. And so they start to lose sight of um, the reality of the world, right? Sorry? No, that we started with the other one. And no, this is the first one that we didn't oh, show. Okay. Mm. Gotcha. All right. Uh, yeah. So, um, so evidence here is based on a history of past success. Mm. When I'm working with a six client and they start to talk about their concerns of not being able to achieve something or not be able to accomplish something or that something will be threatening to them and that they won't take a risk because this will happen or that will happen. What I would do with them is we, we say, okay, have you ever done this before? Have you ever done something like this before? Say it's giving a speech, right? Well, have you ever given a speech before? And usually they either have done it or they've done something similar to it. Very few experiences are completely novel. And so we then say, okay, well, how did it go? Now, most of the time, the answer is, well, it went okay, right? It went pretty well. I say, okay, so you have a track record of doing this. Let's write down all the times that it went well. Now, they might say, well, it was a disaster, right? It was, it was horrible. I flopped. And so we'd say, okay, well, why did that happen? right? What are the reasons that happened? Let's prepare for those reasons. Okay. So it doesn't happen again. So it's about finding evidence of past success and reminding ourselves of that evidence. Because what happens with the six is they forget it. And again, yeah. six in each of us. I, I always think of this one particular client who she was uh, going to run for kind of president of the chair of the board of the an organization she was part of. And she wasn't confident uh, that she would do a good job. And, but people were asking her to run for that role. And um, we went through her, I, I met her just when she was struggling, struggling with that. And she started telling me about her previous experiences and she had, succeeded in a lot of kind of leadership roles or positions or uh, without really um, realizing that those were leadership um, activities yeah. and that she had 
and that there was uh, that there were huge accomplishments on her side. And just by me allowing her to see that as evidence gave her more confidence. Yeah. Um, she would not, not see it herself. Yeah. I find it's important to get people to write these things down, right? To, you know, to put it in a Word file or an Excel sheet or just on a piece of paper written in pencil so that they can pull it out and remind themselves. Okay? Because uh, when we rely on our memory of this, when we do this as just a mental exercise rather than actually writing it down, we forget. And this is the challenge of the six. They forget the accomplishments. They, they forget the successes and they focus on the threats. They focus on the things, the times when things didn't work. Mm -hmm. So by writing these things down, keeping the list handy, it really does have a transformative effect on the six. The other piece of this is um, around preparation, right? I mean, it's perfectly fine to prepare for things. Right? We just want to make sure that that preparation is appropriate. Okay? So, you know, to sit down and realistically think about, okay, what do I need to do to ensure that I'm safe? What do I need to do to ensure that I'm successful? And then what is overkill? And try to get some sense of that. So there's nothing wrong with having a system in place, you know, a checklist of things to do, you know, lock the door at night, turn off all the burners, you know, whatever it is. Okay. Um, but once we go through the checklist, we shouldn't necessarily do it twice or three times or four times, okay? unless it's something really, really important. Okay, if you're getting ready to fly a plane, then do it a couple of times, right? Just to make sure if that makes you feel better. But for garden variety of things, it's about appropriateness. Another thing that I often ask, you know, uh, encourage people to do is to rate their chance of success. Okay, so, all right, so you're concerned about this thing happening. Give me a percentage. What's the percentage that you'll be successful? Is it 50-50, right? Is it 60-40? Is it 30-70? Okay, why do you score it that way? What can we do to raise those odds a little bit? Okay. What things from your past would indicate that you can probably feel a little safer raising the odds? So it's the, the important thing not to do with a six is to say, ah, don't worry, <laughs> don't worry it'll be fine, right? No, that's just not going to fly, okay? But we have to talk about appropriate preparation based on evidence. At point nine, the accelerator is generativity. Generativity is a term from the psychologist Eric Erickson, who wrote about and taught about stages of life. Uh, it was primarily focused on the stages of childhood or the, the Why phases. Why do people choose those names? I don't, you know, I don't know. I know, I know. How can there's, you think that it's a good thing to yeah, do that? With your kid? Um, I, I was just watching the NBA <laughs> playoffs uh, this week, and there's a player on the Atlanta team named Bogdan Bogdanovich, you know, and it's like, come on, man, you know? So, uh, all right. So, anyway, back to poor Eric Erickson with the repetitive name. Um, he also talked about um, uh, adult stages, although he, that's not really what he's known for. Uh, but the um, one of the stages he talked about is generativity. 
And in his mind, generativity is kind of like correlates to kind of the grandparenting stage, right? Where, you know, the grandparent has done their work, they've raised their children, they've lived their life, and they have accumulated wisdom and insight and experience through the course of that. And now it is their role to um, love and advise the grandchildren, but without expecting anything in return. And they can do it with less baggage because, you know, the, the grandparent gets to go home, right? They don't have to deal with the kid uh, at their less, you know, uh, you know, gracious moments. Okay. So um, they had, they don't have to put them to bed. Exactly. Every night. <laughs> exactly. Right. So they get the good stuff without the bad stuff. And so, you know, but there's something to this, right? Because it allows the grandparent or people who are being generative to be less, you know, emotionally impacted in the relationship in negative ways. Okay. Certainly they're impacted in positive ways. And so therefore they can do um, with, I don't know, less entanglement. Okay. So they can give advice, but it's, it's going to be, be coming from a purer place because the parent has more of an agenda, right? When they're giving advice, I want you out of my house. So my advice to you is to study this in college, right? Whereas the grandparent doesn't care about that. They say, well, you know, maybe you should follow your heart and maybe you should consider this and maybe you should do that. So they're able to give that kind of advice, right? So, um, so for the nine, this practice of generativity is really helpful because, you know, again, the core quality at point nine is benevolence, good intention, um, and the nine starts to doubt their, their intention. They start to doubt their basic goodness. Okay? Um, they substitute striving to feel peaceful for that. They say, well, you know, if I can't be good, at least I'll stay out of the way. I won't impose myself on the world in some way. But the practice of generativity, kind of legacy building by acting to develop and nurturing the next generation brings them into engagement with the world instead of kind of stepping back from it. And it does so in a way that reminds them, hey, you know what? I do have something to offer here. I am a good person. I do have good intentions for people because I'm not getting anything in return for this. So the activity of doing it is kind of altruistic. So when we work with clients, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Maria. Now I was just thinking about this friend who uh, is buying land in the South, um, just as a, uh, she's annoying. And she used to um, do all the good and bad things of the nine um, with all the problems that it this, that brings. And uh, now she found this way of kind of living a legacy uh, for the future generations and working towards future generations and towards the people who live in the surrounding areas of that land she's buying. And she wants to preserve those um, forests and that land so that um, it's not destroyed. And she is now, she flourished. It, it is amazing how she's now more active and determined because she's fighting for that, but in a way that it's not for her, her own kind of um, 
Glorification. Glorification. Yeah. And it's amazing how she can set boundaries and really I mean, work really hard and even not fight, but engage in conflict because it's for that purpose. Absolutely right. And that's what happens at point nine with generativity, right? Because in a way, beyond the just general satisfaction of the act itself, I'm not getting anything out of this, right? So she's preserving that land in the south of Chile for future generations, like you say. And the whole idea about future generations is I'm not one of them, right? So, you know, <laughs> you know so she's not going to see the benefit of that, you know, of what she's providing necessarily, but it has this transformative effect. So often we encourage nines to become mentors to people, right? At work, for example, particularly a mentor to someone who is not, you know, who doesn't work for them, okay? Or who, you know, who they're not going to get a real benefit uh, to find ways to give back the other thing this does for the nine is that it shows them, hey, wait a minute. I actually have things to say that people want to hear, right? I have experiences that can be useful. I have knowledge and wisdom that other people don't have yet, just based on being around a long time, okay, or a longer time, if nothing else, okay? And so um, it has this effect of making the nine not feel inflated, but feeling full, right? Of, yes, oh, okay, I am someone uh, of value. I am someone of good intention. Um, so they go from the immature version of just simply having a lack of ill will. I'm not going to actively do anything, but at least I'm not going to get in the way, okay? To the mature version, which is an expressed goodwill. I have goodwill, I act on it okay, without necessarily an expectation of praise, glorification, you know, maybe even acknowledgement. Yeah, because you know, that, that's what they're trying to avoid when they don't yes. want to seem arrogant. Yes. So that stops them from expressing uh, their goodwill and their value. And yeah. uh, through the generativity, it allows them to see that they have that kind of benevolence and share it or show yeah. it. Yeah. Just a, a point on that, that I, that I want to touch on, because this is always a tricky area for nines, mm. right? So we say, okay, so they don't want thanks or praise in return, but everybody kind of does, right? I mean, it's nice for people to show gratitude to us, but that's not why we do generativity. But for the nine, when somebody does thank them, when somebody does acknowledge them, it's important for them to accept the acknowledgement. Okay. And I always put this in terms of generativity as well, right? So for example, nines will have a tendency when somebody thanks them for something, they'll say, oh, it was no big deal, right? It was, you know, it, it was nothing. Anybody could have done that. Or in some way to, to self-deprecate or... I feel uncomfortable being praised, so I'm going to push it aside. And what they don't realize is that a compliment or a thanks is a gift, right? You're, you're offering someone a compliment. 
And when the nine rejects it, it's it's almost kind of an insult, right? Of saying, nah, I, I, I don't want your gift. Okay, it's, it's, it's not good enough for me. So what I tell the nine is just to say thank you, right? You don't have to say you're damn right. You know, you better thank me, right? You just say thank you. And that's a generative act as well because you're giving the other person the pleasure of receiving their gratitude. So it's an important thing for nines to understand that fits in here.